0: Hallelujah. O oh, Heavenly Father, it is written, we are told in your word, that the most precious of all commodities to us, so infinitely surpassing any amount of worldly riches or wealth, is the blood of Jesus Christ applied to the heart, the soul of man, such that its redemptive power is strong enough, secure enough, sufficient enough to redeem for us, Lord Jesus, access into the throne room in presence of Almighty God where only the purest, as pure as Yourself dwell. And so it is the cleansing power of Christ's blood that sanctifies and regenerates the human heart. It is the robes of righteousness of Jesus Christ's own law-keeping draped upon us once sinners but now twice born, regenerated, resurrected to newness of life. It is the cleansing power of your finished work on Calvary, O Jesus Christ, that is and will always and only be our safe passage to life eternal. And these songs remind us of that, and so does your word. And may our heart be open to hear the call from the throne of glory, to not waste affections and time and distraction on distracting things of this life that might cause us to waste precious moments of our time better served in devotion and worship to the Lord of glory and reverence and awe and obedience to Him now supplied by the power of the Holy Spirit in response to so great a salvation as we retain in Jesus Christ our Lord. Bless the time of the reading of your word and its proclamation to our souls. May it produce fruit to the To your glory by the power of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In a moment I'll ask you to stand. For the meantime, turn with me if you would to Psalm chapter 110. As you're turning there, I'll remind you four or so weeks ago. The title of the message on Communion Sunday in our Hebrew series which we have initiated recently was Christ according to God. That is, what does God the Father, the first person of the Godhead, say about Jesus Christ, the second person? And we reminded ourselves of the seven citations at the beginning of Hebrews where the author therein proves the superiority and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ our Lord. The final citation in Hebrews chapter 1 to show unequivocally from the Old Testament inspired scriptures that Jesus Christ is Lord and a sufficient and glorious Savior was cited from Psalm 110. This morning, the title of our message is Ghostwriter of Hebrews. That is, there are voices behind the authorship of Hebrews. The author himself is anonymous, anonymous, anonymous to us anyway. But you could almost say, That the psalmist David, in writing Psalm 110, was a ghostwriter, if you will, of Hebrews. Because the concepts and the themes in this glorious psalm, which we've labeled in the past as something of a Rosetta Stone of Scripture, that is a key to unlock glorious redemptive truth, covenant to covenant. That is, the themes of this psalm are so thoroughly woven into Hebrews that you cannot understand the one without the other. And so this morning's message will be an overview of Hebrews using Psalm 110 as our outline. So if you are able, stand with me at this time and let us read together Psalm 110, 1-7. One this is a Psalm of David. In verse 1 we read the following. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. filling them with corpses. They will shatter, he will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, He will lift up His head. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Keep a Thalmer bookmark there in Psalm 110. Throughout the duration of this message, If you will, and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 1. And while you're turning there, let me give you a brief introduction to establish the theme of this message a little more clearly. Though the author of Hebrews remains anonymous to the modern reader, its, quote, ghostwriter does not. The Holy Spirit, the ultimate ghostwriter, the ultimate author behind this glorious book The Holy Spirit's signature is all over this magnum opus of gospel truth. But in addition to that, there is the stunning influence that the Holy Spirit uses from Psalm 110 that undergirds the beautiful, poetic, and symbol-laden, and powerful proclamation of the understanding of the finished work of Christ cover to cover in Hebrews. Some textual scholars have proposed that the book of Hebrews could well be a sermon where the writer, the author, as I mentioned, unknown to us, takes Psalm 110 as his text. Some have surmised that perhaps the book of Hebrews is a sermon on Psalm 110. Given the 13 or so references to Psalm 110 throughout the book of Hebrews, this hypothesis is not hard to consider. But greater still is the probability of this claim when one considers the outline That Psalm 110's seven verses provide for the entire book of Hebrews, which we'll touch just briefly by way of overview this morning. But even more emphasis of the importance of Psalm 110 to the New Testament generally is seen when considering it, that is Psalm 110's 13 references in other New Testament books outside of Hebrews. If you have a pen and would like to mark any of these passages down, I'm now going to give you a list of allusions and references and citations to Psalm 110 throughout the New Testament. In the book of Mark, we have three Mark chapter 12, verse 35, Mark chapter 14, verse 62, Mark 16, verse 19. And then in the book of Matthew, there's two, chapter 22, verse 43. Chapter 26, verse 64. Also you will find in Luke, in chapter 20, verse 41, a reference to Psalm 110, as well as chapter 22, verse 69. Later in Acts, by the same author, you will find in chapter 2, verse 34, in Peter's sermon, a reference, a citation directly again from Psalm 110. Romans 8, 34, Paul incorporates the same language, Yet again, he does it in 1 Corinthians 15.25, also in Ephesians 1.20, Colossians 3.1, and Peter does so in 1 Peter 3.22. Those are the 13 additional references to Psalm 110 that we find throughout the New Testament. Our author in the book of Hebrews alone cites Psalm 110 six times in reference to the ascension of Christ the very beginning of the book, we're reminded of that. We'll read that verse again in a moment, verse 3. And then seven times, Psalms 110, is cited with reference to the priestly work of Christ. Thus Christ, the King and Priest of the Melchizedek order, is gloriously manifest from Hebrews one to Hebrews 13.24, that is from cover to cover. And so what can we learn about the relationship of Psalm 110 to Hebrews. Well, this morning we'll attempt to give you an overview in that regard by identifying five basic themes that are shared between the two works, Psalm 110 and the book of Hebrews. A heading for the rest of the body of this message, Psalm 110 and Hebrews share the following themes. Number one, the ascendancy and authority of Christ's kingdom. Number two, and we'll cover these in detail later, the posture of covenant affirmation. Number three, the nature and fulfillment of Melchizedek priesthood. Number four, there's a consideration of divine justice. And then number five, later in closing, a gospel sealed benediction. Read with me in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Long ago, at many times and in many ways. God spoke to our fathers by the prophets in these last days. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom, that is, through Christ also, He created the world. He, again, Christ, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He, again, Christ... Upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins. Notice with particular attention this phrase at the end of verse 3. He again Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Reading a little further verse 4. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited. Is more excellent than theirs. And so it proceeds in the first chapter, the author begins to cite Old Testament references of the Godhead speaking of the Godhead that further proves his point, the superiority of Christ over any and all other names. And so he quotes in verse 5, You are my Son, today I have have begotten you, from Psalm 2, verse 7. And again, there's a reference from Second Samuel seven fourteen. Thirdly, Deuteronomy thirty two thirty four. Fourthly, Psalm one hundred four seven. Fifthly, Psalm forty five six and seven. Sixthly, Psalms one hundred two twenty five through twenty seven. And finally, read with me verse thirteen in chapter one of Hebrews again. And to which of the angels has he ever said, "Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool of for your feet." Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? But again, verse 13, Until I make, sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That refrain is echoed again and again and again throughout the New Testament Scriptures. And where is it cited? From, it's cited again from Psalm 1. The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand. Until I make your enemies your footstool. We have seen behind the scenes in the pages of just the few scriptures we've opened so far this morning. We have gotten a sneak peek behind the curtain in the situation room of the Godhead, if you will. We can see through the intricate interweaving of the themes of scripture. From beginning to end, the plan in the mind of God was according to his utter and final decree. Fulfilled in time as his glory and plan unfolds in the benefit of those looking on with the Holy Spirit, giving us eyes to see we are seeing what God has planned in eternity past in the offering of his son for the payment of our sins, but also in the ascendancy of his son to present to his father a kingdom forever for his Glory and namesake. Psalm 110 and Hebrews share the following themes. First of all, the ascendancy and authority of Christ's kingdom. When we say ascendancy, the word has connotations that there's an increase. There's a growing sense and dimension to the kingdom of God. What was smaller is now growing. But let me qualify that term before we move on to describe what this means in context. This is not to say that ascendancy implies. That there was something lesser or prior to the fulfillment of Christ's work that would demonstrate weakness in the Godhead. That the Godhead in the mind of God and in His will and intention, that there ever existed a moment where He was not utterly in charge of all things. No, such is not the case. Instead, what we are seeing in the ascendancy of the kingdom of God is the unfolding of of God the Father's sovereign decree before time was even initiated at the beginning of this universe. Ascendancy is meant to be qualified in biblical understanding by sovereign decree. What are the decrees of God? Again, we are told, as we've referenced recently in the Catechism, the decrees of God are His eternal purpose, according to the counsel of His will, whereby for His own glory... He has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. And one thing He has foreordained, and the authors of Scripture are jealous for us to know as they repeat it over and over again, He has foreordained that God the Father say to God the Son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. God has foreordained an ascendancy and authority in the kingdom of Christ Thus we find the meaning of the ascension itself. The fact that Christ finished His work here on earth and was ascended to the Father and upon His arrival at His throne presenting to Him His kingdom. These ubiquitous New Testament references as fulfillment indicate to us that there is a full and a final completion of what Psalm 110 spoke of. Daniel 7, 13 and 14, that underscores the meaning of the ascension. In Hebrews chapter 1, it's the bookends of the prologue. The book is introduced with this idea that Christ has, at now this end of the age, sat down at the right hand of the Father. Thus, He says, we are living in a different eschaton now. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, And what was the significant milestone that indicated this turning of events? Well, it was the ascendancy and authority of Christ's kingdom manifest upon His ascending to the Father after the finished work of redemption, pictured in this language, that He now sat down as He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Majesty on high is a reference to God the Father, It was common, as we've mentioned briefly in previous messages, for in Jewish culture to refer to God the Father, not by His proper name, if you will, the Tetragrammaton of Yahweh, those four Hebrew letters that were considered culturally ineffable. You were not to speak them because they were too high and reverent to grace the lips of a mere mortal. And so often the name of God was substituted for another phrase, which added glorious dimension to His character and would highlight an attribute. And so we find a reference to God the Father in uh, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, as majesty on high. Throughout the New Testament references of the ascension of Christ, though, in other passages as well, throughout the books we find other points of circumlocution where there's a substitute name for God given. We find Christ arriving The majesty on high, arriving at the majesty in heaven, at the throne of God. Sometimes it's merely spoken of as the power until Christ sat down at the right hand of the power and also power of God. Thus, the meaning of the ascension is better understood and indeed, I would say, cannot be understood outside of of an understanding of the purpose and plan of God. His sovereign decree that is written for us in Psalm 110 and cited time and again in the New Testament Scriptures. The ascendancy and authority of Christ's kingdom are a shared theme between Psalm 110 and the book of Hebrews. Also underneath that point of ascendancy and authority is not just the meaning of the ascension, but also meaning of subjugation. And we we read in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 4, after Christ has sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, there's this language in verse 4, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And then it's followed with citations that prove how far superior Christ is to any other authority, including angels. And so it is to say that Christ in his ascendancy is over transcends authoritatively and everything lesser every other name is subjugated under him it's lesser it's part of his kingdom over which he rules what is the meaning of subjugation what is the meaning of subjection of every rule and every authority to christ well psalm 110 is helpful in this regard in psalm 110 it says sit at my right hand again in verse 1 until I make your enemies your footstool. Verse 2 reads, The Lord sends forth from Zion His, your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Rule in the midst of your enemies. There is two images at least that refer to the subjugation of Christ's enemies in these first two verses of Psalm 110. The first is the metaphor of footstool. Everything that is not of Christ, that is not Christ Himself or the Godhead, is subjugated under Him and is indeed His footstool. But we see something of the process of this subjugation in verse 2, perhaps, when it says, "...He sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter," which is the metaphor referring to the rule of the king as symbolized by the scepter in His hand, His authority." But then it says, rule in the midst of your enemies. There is a window of time where we are as a church waiting for the full and consummate kingdom of God in the utter and final subjugation of every last enemy, including according to 1 Corinthians 15, death itself. But in the meantime, Christ is ruling in the midst of His enemies. You may wonder, how in the world can anyone believe the claim that Christ is Lord? After all, if we were to close our eyes and to imagine what kind of world we would see if Christ was truly Lord, it may not be the world that surrounds us today. In the concept and our idea and our ideal of Christ declaring His authority and subjugating His enemies under Him, We may not allow for, in our human thinking, suffering, sin, disease, false authority claims, nation rising against nation, war, calamity, pestilence, famine, sword, and all of these things that we nevertheless live with in our social context, at least for this brief moment in time. The time before Christ's arrival, or you could say Christ's initial plan, which was Uh, interrupted by the fall of man in Genesis, but then his final plan to set all things right in Christ when every rule is subject under him, everything that is not redeemed by his blood is confined to his wrath eternal in hell and the world is overflowing and flourishing with his peace and rule, such that there are nothing, there is nothing of the sort of the previous things I mentioned anymore, sorrow, sickness... disease, and so on. So why this interim time where we do suffer these things? Well, the meaning of subjugation is explained to us in the course of Scripture. And Psalm 110 tells us that Christ will rule for a time in the midst of His enemies. But this is a subjugation of a certain sort. It is an incremental, that is, little by little, subjugation for the sake. And listen to this, it's perhaps most important in this point, for the sake of the elect. God has his own that he is calling forth from the sinful and fallen circumstances on this world, of this world. And he is long suffering in his patience, waiting until the time when the fullness of the elect, a number he alone knows, will come in to the fold. And thus, for our sake, beloved, if you are in Christ today, this subjugation is incremental. Christ could have and would have rightly exercised his authority if he had so chosen to declare ultimate subjugation upon Adam and Eve's first sin, condemned our parents to hell, never to reproduce, and that would have been at the close of human history. In that eschaton of space-time, God would have been just and glorified. But there is a greater and more glorious plan. There is this incremental subjugation during which God is glorified in such a way that He has seen fit to gather for Himself throngs upon throngs from every nation, tribe, and tongue, who will gloriously manifest the power of Christ's blood to redeem their own souls as they lift their voices in heaven one day in unified, powerful praise. Worthy is the lamb that was slain. Thus, the meaning of subjugation is a very gracious one indeed that we find in the testimony of Scripture. In the the ascendancy and authority of Christ's kingdom, do not mistake. In your heart's cry, for come quickly, Lord Jesus, any lack of authority or any lack of power in Christ's scepter or any doubt as to who and what forces and powers and principalities are under His feet and are indeed His footstool. Never doubt, only glory, only praise. Because every moment He tarries and every day He waits means that the coffers of heaven filled with the elect have not reached their brim just yet. So that every day that he suffers this wicked world to remain is a testimony to his loving kindness and his grace. And slowly and surely the elect are coming in according to his perfect timetable and the incremental subjugation of his enemies, including the grip of sin, over those souls who have been tormented from birth, caught in the blood poison of Adam, are being set free when the gospel goes forth and is proclaimed, and they bow their knee to the authority of Christ for the redemption and forgiveness of their own sins. In Hebrews chapter 2, if you would turn there with me, There is a testimony of this subjugation and an evidence of it that we read in context here. It says in verse 8, putting everything in subjection under his feet, all back up to verse 5. Now it was not to the angels that God subjected the world to come. So you see the language here. So the author is going to expound on again. If this was a sermon from Psalm 110, he's helping us to understand the first point that the psalmist makes. Now, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the Son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower, a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, He left nothing outside His control. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to Him, but we see Him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, He might taste death for everyone. And so you see the meaning of subjection here. For a time, it looked like the authorities had control of Jesus' life itself. They did not. Instead, God had decreed that He would die at the hands of sinful men. Why was for this brief moment, did it look like the Son of Man was subjected to the wickedness of this earth? It was to make propitiation for yours and my sin. It was a testimony of grace. And because of this glorious act, a greater victory is wrought In the end, as we've mentioned in the past, we do not celebrate war heroes who simply sit in an air-conditioned Navy base or Army base in Kansas, run their drones with remote-controlled joysticks and draw bombs on distant terrorists. Those kinds of war stories don't ring of the nobility and the bravery and the conquering glory of one who faces the enemy head on, on the battle lines, and you find him engaging with bloodied sword for the sake of his comrades and the cause for which he fights. Our Lord is a conqueror, something like that, who has engaged the enemy at the ultimate point of contact, with the right to yours and my soul. He has defeated him by his own death. Thus, his blood purchases the right to our souls if you are in Him today. And so He has put all enemies, even death and sin itself, in subjection under Him through the cross. There's a historical illustration that may help you to understand this. It helps me a little bit in this regard. The meaning of subjection. In Ezekiel chapter 26, there was a curious prophecy about a city named Tyre. You might remember this city from our Matthew study. Around the time that Ezekiel wrote his work, his prophecy, uh, Tyre was an island about a kilometer off the shore of the Holy Land there to the north. And then its sister city was on the mainland. Well, Tyre was besieged something like 11 times since 724 B.C. But one particular battle campaign against that island city is duly noted in Alexander the Great in 322 B.C. Alexander the Great was so determined to conquer this small city, this proud bastion of Mediterranean glory, that he decided to build a causeway to bring his war machines to their self-professed impenetrable gates and walls. And so he did it. It took some time, mind you. Perhaps a year or more. I'm not sure of the timeline. But Alexander the Great and his troops began to fill in material. And those who were in the city could certainly see their future before them. They could have built their walls taller, strengthened their defenses all they wanted to as they waited for this causeway to be built. But their end was inevitable. Not just because of Alexander the Great's superior war might, military technology, and ambition to conquer their city, but more so because God had declared it so through His prophet Ezekiel. This city would be destroyed. It would become a bare rock for the spreading of nets. It would be a tool for the common fisherman, not a jewel that would stand for the glory of man anymore. And that day would soon arrive. Little by little, incrementally, Tyre was placed under subjection of Alexander the Great's thumb as that causeway was built. He got closer and closer to the city as he built this highway through the sea, as it were. When he arrived just y- hundreds of yards from the city walls, 160-foot siege towers were erected, and day after day, the war machines lodged projectiles against the so-called impenetrable walls of Tyre, and it eventually fell. So great was its fall, so decisive was its victory, that upon the troops' arrival within the gates, they began to use the rubble of the city of Tyre to build up that causeway. And in the course of that battle campaign, they succeeded in turning an island into a peninsula and if you looked on google map today what Tyre was the ancient world it will never be again it is no longer an island sandbars washed up against that causeway and now it's connected as a peninsula and it's highly developed on that roadway in between and there's acres and acres of ruins of that ancient glorious city and you can see in the lapping waves of the shore of that island pieces of rubble that were thrown into the sea you see the higher those buildings were built and the defiance of man against the oracle of god it only provided more raw material for the riprap to change the geographical situation and conquer and transform that entire civilization and city for the glory of the conqueror that is a picture of the incremental subjugation of our Lord Jesus Christ the higher man builds his obstinate towers of Babel the more effort he puts in the stones and in his resolve against the glory of God the more fodder for the kingdom to come he provides our conquering Lord And one day the cities that man has erected in obstinance to the prophecies and oracle of God's rule and reign such that in time one day every enemy of his will be subjugated under his feet, a footstool for the throne of our Jesus Christ. Every edifice that's built will be torn down and used as foundation stones for the new Jerusalem, if you will. And though we wait for this moment, It is not a weight that in any way suggests God is not powerful to conquer. He will. It's a weight that is strategic that will in the end only earn Him more glory. This is the message of Psalm 110. May we be found in the conquering camp of Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the message of the book of Hebrews. The ascendancy and the authority of Christ's kingdom join the incremental success of Christ's kingdom and abandon that which looks like a superior refuge in the meantime, which is nothing but an edifice to the humanism of man, which will be utterly destroyed when God has His final say, the judgment seat of Christ. Point number two, the posture of covenant affirmation. There's a theme that's shared by both Psalm 110 and Hebrews, and it is the posture of covenant affirmation. That is the attitude or the position of believers, those who are aligned with the conquering Messiah that's prophesied of old. Notice in, chapter, in chapter, Psalm chapter 110, verse 3, this is the posture of the covenant, uh, those who affirm the covenant your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. Those who are citizens and align themselves and identify themselves with the Messiah who rules in the midst of his enemies, who incrementally is subjugating every rule under heaven as his own footstool, they are those who willingly offer themselves freely on the day of His power, and they do so washed clean of their own sin as represented by these holy garments. And it's something of a spontaneous new birth, much like the dew appears in the morning, almost as a miracle. It's an image of something spontaneously springing out of the darkness of night to awaken the dawn, the dew that freshly illuminates and glistens on the leaves as the sun rises over the crest of the distant hills from the womb of the morning the dew of your youth will be yours these are images that are fulfilled in John 11:25 in the Lazarus situation where Jesus Christ approaches the dead man and the doubters and he says i am the resurrection and the life i am the resurrection and the life And thus, those who willingly offer themselves, who freely offer themselves, are those who appear resurrected and full of eternal life as those who have sprung from the womb of the morning. Womb, speaking of new birth. Who wear garments that are provided for them by Christ Himself. As we see that picture of righteousness and sanctification of Christ's garments draping our form, His righteousness conferred to our frame. And these are those who posture themselves in covenant affirmation. That is, they agree with Christ. They fight for Christ. They submit to Christ. They worship Christ. They love Christ. And they never ultimately betray Christ. The Hebrews' application of this point, that is, the posture of the covenant affirmation of those who are aligned with the conquering Messiah, comes primarily by way of warning. Hebrews warns the church. That is, Hebrews warns the church, the interim visible church, those who count themselves in their confession among the people of God. It warns them, if you don't really understand the terms of this covenant, You are running dangerously. You are living a dangerous life indeed. He says in chapter 3 verse 1, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. He goes on to say in 3, 7 through 11, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts, As in the rebellion, on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for forty years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Again, this note of warning when it compares those who thought they were affirming the covenant in this picture of the Old Testament Israelites who quickly disavowed their Lord in their complaining and in their apostasy. It says in verse 12, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. Search yourself. Examine yourself daily. See if you are in the faith. Do you find within your soul a posture of one who is well described in Psalm 110 as, offering Himself freely in the day of Christ's power. You realize the power of Christ's finished work, and upon that realization you throw yourself at His mercy and in service of His great kingdom, recognizing that you are made worthy of joining Him only by His holy garments supplied to you, and that this is a work of regeneration, of resurrection to, unto eternal life as you have sprung as it were the dew from the womb of the morning into newness of abundant life. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1, 3, verses 7 through 11, also chapter 4, verse 11, there's this refrain of warnings repeated. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest here speaking of the Sabbath rest that is promised only sufficiently in Christ. Let us strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall away by the same sort of disobedience. And then it goes on to describe the word of God powerful in bringing our attention and discernment to bear in that regard. Hebrews, the author of Hebrews deals with the question. What if we were not so moved to offer ourselves freely to the Lord when the going got tough or when it was difficult? What if we were not? Well, then we would find ourselves not among those who are affirming the covenant, but among those who have counted ourselves in a superficial way, affiliated with Christ, associated with Christ, hanging around the church, but not ultimately in Christ Because when the going got tough, the trials got deep and dark. And the road got steep and narrow. Even as this church was incurring persecution at the time that this message was written to them, we found ourselves falling away. We must... Remain in the conquering cause of Christ Jesus, our Lord. And we're reminded of the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. The promise of rest is contingent upon the Holy Spirit's work, evident in long-suffering and in perseverance, in zeal and earnestness, worked in the heart of the believer, in service of our conquering Messiah's holy cause. Thus, there's an application of this posture of covenant affirmation that the author of Hebrews draws out by way of warning. The author of Hebrews also makes an application of those who are affiliated with the covenant, and he does this via means via means, or the way or the method that we stay firmly fixed in the good graces of the Lord. In fact, the only way we ever are in the good graces of the Lord of our lord and that is through the high priesthood of Christ. In chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, we read of these truths. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Again he's saying that confidence and the posture if you will of covenant affirmation is secure in the heart of the redeemed because of the high priesthood of Christ, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every way, who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And thus the author of Hebrews again is hitting on this theme of those who are in the covenant of God by saying that only through the means of Christ's high priesthood, do we deserve or do we have or maintain any assurance that our confession will hold fast? Any confidence that we can draw near to the throne of grace and not be ultimately ostracized from the presence of God? Only, this is the one and only way His people, Christ's people, can and will offer themselves freely on the day of his power. That is, how is Psalm 110 fulfilled? How does this come true? Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. Only one way this will become true. His people will offer themselves freely on the day of his power only by realizing the high priesthood of Jesus Christ, their Lord. Understanding and through the Holy Spirit's work appropriating the blood of Christ as their high priest that cleanses them from sin. This is the posture of covenant affirmation fulfilled in Christ's work in Hebrews. Psalm 110 and Hebrews share a third theme. Number three, they share this theme, the nature and fulfillment of Melchizedek priesthood. The author of Psalm 110 goes on to explain something about the nature of this conquering Messiah here prophesied. It says in verse 4 The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the course of redemptive history, this is indeed surprising that a priest would also be a king. But that was the picture supplied. In the order of Melchizedek of old, a mysterious figure who exists as a metaphor for Christ himself at least, perhaps even a theophany. And Melchizedek of old was king and priest, and Abraham offered tithes to him. And so in Christ we see this picture fulfilled and evident. The author of Hebrews, actually this is the crux and the meat of his work, The primary body of his text is given to expound the nature and fulfillment of the Christ Melchizedek priesthood. Psalm 110.4 is expounded from chapter 5 all the way through 10 and 12. There are just four headings I'll give you briefly that you could organize the material perhaps around. First of all, there's the order of the priesthood itself. Secondly, there's the covenant, the nature of the covenant in Christ. Thirdly, the tabernacle. And fourthly, sacrifice. This order of the priesthood to underscore the nature and fulfillment of what Melchizedek's work, his mediatorial work meant as highlighted in different places like Hebrews 5 verse 10, being designated by God, speaking of Christ, a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. This order is different than the Aaronic order, the order of Aaron, or the mere office of man, who would have to be repeated because he would die, and then a new priest would need to arise to fill the void. This priest was different. This Christ that is prophesied, and then here in time fulfilled. In chapter seven, verse one through three, verses one through three, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first by translation of his name, King of Righteousness. Then he is also King of Salem, that is, King of Peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. So you see, expounded the uniqueness of the order of Melchizedek priesthood. He is not one who will die. He will live forever. In the marking of this Old Covenant enigmatic figure, the fact that he had no recorded lineage spoke to the fact that Christ himself would be king and priest eternally. Later in the same chapter, verses 23, we read the former priests. Now we're seeing a contradistinction from the old order to the new. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing office. But he, again, speaking of Christ, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. And again, you see that... Those who affirm the covenant, those who draw near to him, those who freely give themselves in the day of his power, they do so, why? Through what means through the high priesthood of Christ, who is able to save to the uttermost because he is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. His sacrifice and his intercession for us is sufficient since he always lives, it says, verse 25, to make intercession for them. And so it goes Verse 26, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. And notice these adjectives ascribed to Christ. Holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those former high priests to offer sacrifices daily. First for his own sins, then for those of the people. Since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness, High, as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later, than the law appoints a son, that's Christ, who, is made, who has been made perfect forever. So again, the order or the nature and fulfillment of Melchizedek priesthood is underscored in the exposition of the order of this uniqueness of Christ's high priestly intercession for us. Later we read of the New Covenant, chapter 8, verse 6. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is far more excellent than the old, as the covenant He mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. Later we read in similar language of the tabernacle. The tabernacle of old, that image, that symbol-laden picture and prophecy, that prefiguring of what was to come, has again been fulfilled and indeed eclipsed in Christ. In chapter 9, verse 8. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices that are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. And it continues... But when Christ appeared as a high priest of all good things that have come, and through the greater and more perfect tent, notice that reference to tabernacle and tent there, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, He, again Christ, entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of His own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption, an eternal redemption redemption. This is the nature and fulfillment of the Melchizedek priesthood. So much more, so much better, eclipsing and fulfilling the old. Then the final is sacrifice. We find expounding that, that last point that we just read in the further exposition, the author of Hebrews identifies this common theme in Psalm 110, which identified the significance of Melchizedek briefly. We find it expounded in detail related to sacrifice at length in this glorious book of Hebrews. In chapter 9, verse 13, the author continues to speak of the sacrifice for if the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls and with the ashes of a heifer sanctifies for the purification of flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God purify our conscience from dead works, to serve the living God. And so we see how it well could be that the author of this book has taken Psalm 110 as his text and expounded it with glorious notes of fulfillment in Christ. We see it in the nature and fulfillment of Melchizedek, spoken of in Psalm 110 and expounded in the book of Hebrews. Fourthly, there's a considering of divine justice, the consideration of divine justice. Psalm one ten verses uh, six and six uh, I'm sorry, five and six declare the following The Lord is at your right hand, he will shatter kings on the day of his wrath, he will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. This language of utter destruction because the Lord is a just God and will finally subdue, as we've mentioned before, and subjugate all His enemies under Him. The application in the book of Hebrews when considering divine justice is warnings for the interim visible church. Twice highlighted in the book of Hebrews is the continuity of the penal sanctions, that is, the punishment of the old covenant. It says in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 2, For since the message declared to angels proved to be reliable, and listen, every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? We see from the old covenant that God is a God of justice. And that ought to, the author of Hebrews says, move us to fear. If we should neglect so great a salvation, if every transgression of the law of God of old received just retribution, that is, and received justice, payment, and punishment, how shall we escape if we neglect the covenant means today? So there's a warning issued for the visible interim church. That is not the invisible church, those who absolutely are the God only knows number in Christ, but instead those who, who gather every day in churches all across this globe, who associate, who profess Christ, but need to hear the warning that if they hear the gospel and they, not, and they do not pay heed, if they do not repent, then they will fall under punishment and sanction. And how much more? Because they have the greater responsibility of the revealed Christ to contend with. No excuses. If it ever could be said, it certainly can't be said now, and indeed it never can, because God's revelation to man has always been sufficient to deny him any excuse. He has been brought, his attention has been brought to the holiness of God, and he must repent or be destroyed. The second reference to the punishment of the Old Covenant and its continuity as a concept that is the consideration of divine justice in both the Old Covenant and the New is in chapter 10, verse 26 says here, for, again, this is a warning, For again, if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment, and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. And again, verse 29, After calling witness to the Old Testament justice, the Old Covenant justice, the author of Hebrews issues a warning. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. There's a common theme between Psalm 110 and the book of Hebrews. It's the consideration of divine justice. And it's issued as a a warning in the New Covenant context. A warning for the interim, that is, before Christ finally returns. All the sheaths of wheat are gathered into His barns. And all the sheep who hear His voice are gathered into His fold fully in glory one day. There's a warning for the church that gathers by association today twice highlighting the continuity of judgment with the old covenant to the new with respect to these warnings here. And so it should fall on our ears with a certain fear. We would search our own hearts and see if we can truly identify with Christ. Or may we, we've been identifying with something related to Him. Our friends, our tradition, our upbringing, the way we are raised, what our pastor says or the church But not ultimately in union with Christ. For those who find themselves satisfied with just a form of godliness. But have denied the ultimate power that is manifest. That is evidenced when they truly repent. And their lives truly begin to change. For those who fall under that category. Heed these warnings. Hebrews 2. Hebrews 10. He these warnings that remind us that God, Jesus Christ, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is a God of justice. And if His justice is not satisfied in the blood of Christ for your sins, His justice will be satisfied in the punishment of your soul in hell forever. Consider divine justice. Also under this consideration of divine justice, we are reminded hopefully for those that are in Christ that we will be finally saved Because we are among the last kingdom standing. We are in what will be the last kingdom standing. You've heard the adage, no one's taller than the last man standing. No kingdom is taller than the last kingdom standing. There is a shaking that will come. There's an utter destruction of everything that is not in Christ, but there is a kingdom that will remain. We read of this kingdom in chapter 12. Verses 22 and following. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if he did not escape when they refused him, who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain our worship text this morning unfolded with these glorious words let's hear them again and be thankful and grateful hearts offered to him worship that he so deserves and reverence and fear even as we transition in moments to communion verses 28 and 29 read therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken and thus let us offer to god acceptable worship with reverence and awe For our God is a consuming fire. Our God is a God of justice. And there is an ultimacy in that which is unshakable. And only the kingdom of God will be standing in the end. Everything else will be destroyed, subjugated under His feet. Finally, in closing, in Psalm 110, we read a final hopeful verse with poetic imagery. He will drink from the brook by the way, therefore He will lift up His head. Again, this is speaking of Christ. Christ will drink from the brook by the way, therefore He will lift up His head. May I venture to say that this verse speaks in poetic terms that Christ will be satisfied and glorified. His work will achieve everything God had ordained it to accomplish. And in so doing, He will be glorified. He will drink from the brook by the way. He will be satisfied in His work. Therefore, He will lift up His head. He will be glorified in the same. In His, that is Christ's decisive victory, and indeed ultimately uh, pictured in 1 Corinthians 15, where the last enemy death is defeated, Christ is satisfied and glorified. In Hebrews 13, as the author closes his beautiful book, which can well be understood, I feel, according to the outline that Psalm 110 provides, we read these words of benediction, verses 20 through 21. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, The great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, and to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And so the prayer and the promise is that those who are in Christ, those that hear these words as believers, the invisible church, as we've mentioned before, would be equipped themselves through Christ be satisfied with everything good that they need to do His will. And then in executing His will and obedience to Him as a testimony of the Spirit's work through them, bring glory to Christ forever and ever. Thus, in our salvation, Christ provides satisfaction and is satisfied and through our sanctification and our ultimate glorification with Him, Christ is glorified forever and ever. May the God of peace, through His power and grace, revealed in the resurrection of our great shepherd, Jesus Christ, thoroughly equip you, saint, for His greatest glory. That's something of the message in closing of this heavy, weighty, but powerfully glorious book of Hebrews. As we close this message this morning and transition to communion, Remember that communion, the Lord's table, is the lone remaining feast in the new covenant. And in this feast is dramatized. It's a reenactment, if you will, of these themes that we've been studying today. The ascendancy and the authority of Christ's kingdom. The posture of covenant affirmation. The nature and fulfillment of Melchizedek priesthood in the order and the covenant, the tabernacle and the sacrifice. The consideration of divine justice. Divine justice that was satisfied in Christ's broken body and shed blood for those who are in Him today. And finally, the gospel-sealed benediction. That as we partake in this communion, it's a proclamation and a remembrance of of that which is complete in Him. Thus we remember and proclaim the priestly order, covenant, tabernacle, and sacrifice assured Us, assured to us, in Christ's shed blood and broken body this day. Let's transition in prayer. O Heavenly Father, these thoughts are truly too high for mere human minds to contain. Thus, we pray for the Holy Spirit to take what has been accurately represented, and if it has been so, it's been only by your Spirit, and write it by the power of the Spirit to lead us into all truth on the tables of our heart. I pray that as we celebrate communion today that you would remind us of the finished work of Christ and that it would be meaningful for every participant that you might be glorified as we consider the satisfaction and the glorification of Christ in the work of Calvary and the redemption of our very souls. In Jesus' holy name we pray, amen.